So what I was going to do tonight is just briefly sort of look at Revelation and we'll come up to uh, the last part of chapter 8, which I think is where you left off at. And then we may get into chapter 9 some too. Depends on where we go and stuff. There's a uh, book I go to that John, John had a whole stack of books and I've got my own stack of book on Revelation too. So uh, this is the book that John and I share. There's several books we share. But this is one that we both have, and it's called Revelation 4 Views, okay? And so just to sort of go over and review that is that there's actually four, at least four, orthodox views. Uh, and most other views will fall under these four views when we talk about Revelation. And he should have talked about, I think he talked about this on the first night. <clears throat> and so the first thing when I talk to people about Revelation is, Revelation is sort of a non-essential of the faith. It's not like we're talking about salvation or justification and stuff. So salvation is that you have people who are Christians that have different opinion on, on uh, revelation. And so that's why we talk about these four views is that usually it fits under these four views. And the first one would be the, and I can never say this right because I grew up here in West and this is how we talked here in West, but historic, historicist is I think how you'd pronounce that, historicist. So a lot of times when you look at revelation, there's some people that look at it from a historicist viewpoint, and they sort of look at uh, Revelation as a book that talks about the history of uh, the uh, whole of time, if you will, the culmination of time, starting with the apostles until the end of the age, until the end of the time. So they sort of look at Revelation from that standpoint. Uh, the other viewpoint that we would talk about would be a preterist. A preterist you can think about as past. As a preterist to a great extent looks at most of Revelation as being taken part of, uh, most of it being fulfilled in the past. Is that the book was sort of written by um, uh, John and that John was talking about things that would soon happen. So consider most of Revelation uh, as being fulfilled probably with the exception of, of some preterist believe from like chapter 20 on, talks about the coming of Christ, the second coming, is that part hasn't been fulfilled yet, and those are partial preterists. And then the viewpoint John takes is uh, usually called um, a dispensationalism, and he sort of put those in two categories. He talked about the, his, he talked about the historic uh, dispensationalist in the, or the future dispensationalist and I think it takes the latter view which is the future or the futurist and most of the so the dispensationalist or the futurist would look at uh, most of Revelation as being a prophecy that's in the future that's taking place in the future and that's sort of the standpoint we'll talk about tonight and the last part is the spiritualist and the spiritualist sort of take a uh, sometimes the spiritualist view is called the idealist viewpoint or, or called a spiritual viewpoint or called um, um, a symbolic viewpoint and what they sort of see is that Revelation is written as sort of the, uh, the, the struggle that man has uh, with good and evil and sort of over the uh, eons and eras of times that there's always this uh, ongoing struggle between good and evil and that's what you see played out in Revelation uh, and so you sort of see that in every uh, station or age uh, that you live in. So those are sort of the four viewpoints of Revelation. Uh, the reason I bring that up is I was probably 40 years old before I realized that there was a different position you could take besides uh, uh, dispensationalist uh, and your millennial view. So, uh, so that's sort of why I bring that up is that there's, there's some other orthodox views that are considered to be 
uh, okay among the Christian deal. This sort of becomes an intramural discussion, if you will, is that we're not continuing whether you're saved or not. We're just continuing about what your interpretation of Revelation would be. So that's sort of why we look at there. And then if we look at Revelation as a whole book, if we look at that, is that there's sort of eight different categories you can break that down into. Uh, the first part you've already gone over, you talked about the seven letters to the seven churches, so you're familiar with that. Those are really about the first three chapters. And then we're sort of uh, in the second page, the second part of that is going to be Re Revelation 4 through 7. And y'all got through talking about the seven seals, right? The seven, seven scrolls. Seven sealed scrolls. So y'all got through that at the end of chapter 7. And then we're looking at the seven trumpets. We're right in the middle of that tonight. We'll look at trumpet. Trumpet 4, I think. We'll get about halfway through uh, when we talk about the seven trumpets. And that goes through chapter 8 through 10. And then we look, get into the, um, the 1260 days or three and a half years that we talk about in that time frame. That comes in chapter 11. And then we look at the last seven plagues. Sometimes those are called the bowl judgments. Right now we're sort of looking at the trumpet judgments, and we, we talk about the last seven plagues or the, the bowl judgments. And then uh, part six, we talk about the great Babylon. And then part eight, or part, that's part six. Part eight, seven would be the millennial, or the millennial reign, which starts in Revelation 20. And then we talk about the creation of a new heaven and new earth sort of rounds out revelation okay so that's sort of the big big uh fly over if you're in an airplane looking over revelation that's sort of what you see you sort of see those four different views you could have and those sort of eight different parts of what revelation is about so tonight we're going to look at the last part of chapter eight i believe and i got too many books out here i need a bigger podium so i can pull all this stuff out so if we look at chapter 8, I think those last two verses, which is going to be, be verses 12 and 13. And the way this book is devised up, it gives those four different views. And so you have to make sure you're reading the right view when you're reading this. Or you sort of read one view and you'll turn the page and start reading the other one. So that doesn't make any sense. So I've got to make sure I'm reading the right pages here. So if we looked at the first part of chapter 8, we started out about the first part of chapter 8, and that verse 1 it talked about, it started out in, in uh, silence, right? So I can't, I can't talk long with this book because it's big and heavy. It's got lots of pages in it, so I can't walk around with this one much or give me some Popeye arms. So in chapter 8, remember chapter 8 started out, we started out uh, with uh, the seven seals and it talks about the lamb opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then uh, we talk about the seven trumpets, the seven angels with the seven trumpets making announcements. Um, and I think as we go through here, as we look at this and you go on the next few weeks, as you're going to look at the trumpets, you're going to see sort of the pronouncements get, get more severe. 
uh, and sort of the heat gets turned up, if you will, on these uh, trumpet uh, announcements. And then we see about a, I think it talks about a third of the world being affected by these trumpets. And then we sort of see later on is that when we look, I think in chapters, I want to say 12, 13, 14, is it talks about the overall bold judgment or these overall uh, last plagues, if you will. It talks about it affects everybody, okay? So nobody goes unaffected. So if we look at these seven angels blowing the seven trumpets here, uh, you're going to see that um, you're going to see that in the, the seven seals, well, that's the seven seals. So when the trumpets come up in verses two through six, we see that the trumpet judgments that were issued by God. Um, uh, and let me go on through, uh, the one thing I sort of, sort of thought was interesting, let me read this to you, it says, the first four trumpet plagues strike the four major regions of land, uh, land, sea, fresh water, and sky. So when we look at those four things, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, within that period of the early church, these visions were fulfilled both through natural calamities and through analogous spiritual calamities afflicting the souls of the wicked. Uh, but we also see when we look at these plagues, we sort of see uh, what reminds us of Exodus. We saw in verse 8, verse 7, we see hell and fire, and that sort of parallels with Exodus 9, uh, 23 and 24. We talk about uh, verse 8, 8, 8. We talk about blood, and that parallels with Exodus 7, uh, 14 through 24. And then we talk about light, uh, the darkened part, or it talks about, we'll read that verse here in 12, it talks about uh, the sky uh, during the day and the sky at night and the stars being darkened, that parallels with Exodus 10, verses 21 through 23. And then we sort of at the end, we hear, hear this woe announcement, woe announcement that, that stuff, more stuff is coming on. So let's take a look at that verse. Uh, Revelation chapter 8, verse number 12. says, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that the light of their so that the third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So that's verse 12. So in a futurist viewpoint. Uh, they probably would consider that as an actual event. And I'll read something uh, that alludes to that. That's what you got to love about these books. you got one verse and about 12 pages explaining it. I won't read all 12 pages to you. So when we see this is that we see a diminishing, we see that it talks about this is that uh, after this angel has blown is that it talks about uh, a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars uh, and that they were all darkened and that a third of the, of the day did not shine and likewise the night. 
So I'll give you a couple of perspectives on this. Uh, some people would look at this as being symbolic or spiritual. Uh, if you read some of the prophets, you look at Ezekiel, you look at Ezekiel Isaiah, Amos, and some of the other prophets, is that when it talks about sun, moon, and stars, a lot of times they're either talking about political entities or spiritual, uh, spiritual heads or people that are heads of the church and that type of thing. So sometimes it could talk about that in language that we in a in this type of language is that it would refer to something spiritual. Uh, and the futurists here, there are different opinions on on uh, dispensationalists on what they say. And I want to read some of this to you just so you'll know what the difference is, because some of them consider it part of it spiritual, some of it actually considered it as an actual future event. So I think in most cases, the stuff that I remember is that most. Uh, our dispensationalists would believe that this is a future event to happen, some, cas some catastrophe that happens in the heavens and on earth that will affect uh, the way that uh, daylight comes. So let me read you uh, from this section of what the uh, dispensationalists would say. It says, The diminishing of the heavenly lights is judgment is interpreted by Ironside, and that's the author Ironside, as a reduction of light of spiritual perception in the tribulation. So here it is, he's putting a spiritual spin on this, is that these are people who are not responding to the gospel or that the gospel is, is not being received. It says, a blinding of those who reject uh, the all-too-adequate light of the gospel to which they have been exposed. Uh, he refers to this, uh, the prediction of God that says God will send them strong delusions uh, and they should believe the lie and they all may be condemned who do not, um, who do not believe the truth but had pleasures in unrighteousness. And that's a verse that comes from 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So he's talking about that this could be people just not receiving the gospel, that there's a particular darkness or spiritual darkness on people. Uh, and this is an author called Ironside. Uh, also, there's another one it refers to that this being a symbolic a reference here, and it says the sun is the symbol of the highest authority. The moon, uh, who has no not her own light, is symbolic of derived authority, and the stars are symbolic of subordinate authority. So uh, there's symbolism here, meaning that this trumpet judgment is that all authority within the uh, revived Roman Empire will be smitten by the hand from above. As a result, there will be most awful moral darkness. So this Arthur points out, and I would say his name, but I can't pronounce it. I think it's called Gabelin, G-A-E-B-E-L-E-I-N. Okay. He, he sees this as uh, just sort of spiritual darkness again about people uh, being in their own darkness and their own sin and not responding to the gospel that there'll be some judgment upon those folks. Uh, the next bit where people see this more as a literal one is you'll, these are names you should recognize as Wolverd. Wolverd was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary uh, for quite a while, and he's written several books on Revelation. And uh, also Ryrie, you know the Ryrie Study Bible. So these, these quotes that I'll read you now are from those two fellows who are revered uh, as some of the leading uh, scholars on, on uh, dispensationalism. So Wolverd continues to hold out for a more literal application, considering that uh, what we see here is, the, is an eclipse uh, from that extends to a third part of the day and a third part of the night. 
so Wolverines actually see this as an actual event that's going to happen in the future to will there be something that happens to uh, the celestial, to the uh, heavens, to the earth, and perhaps to the moon and to the star that could affect it. Um, and then we have Ryrie weighing in here, and here's what Ryrie says, is that the fourth judgment will affect the sun, moon, and stars, and uniformably of the day-night cycle, the sun, moon, and stars will be smitten to the extent of one-third with the result that, the, that apparently the 24-hour cycle will be shortened to a 16-hour cycle. Perhaps this shorten, shortening of the day and night is what is referred to in Matthew 24, 22. Though, of course, that verse may mean something totally, may mean that the total number of days is shortened. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is something that is hard to understand. I would think that just a mere reading that if you affect uh, the amount of light and that type of thing, that life on earth would cease to exist as we know it today. Uh, and so that would sort of be my scientific opinion. But we have a scientist way in here too, a fellow named Henry Morse. And I think Henry Morse, if I remember correctly, I think he had some ties to, to some uh, University of Houston or somewhere. He was a scientist. Uh, and I think he was, I want to say he was either biology or something to that extent, something to do with life science, if I remember Henry Moore's correctly. He's written several books, I think, on uh, young earth, uh, so actual literal seven days of earth, uh, seven, seven days of creation, six days of creation and a day of rest, so, but the uh, six days of creation. So that's sort of where Henry Morse shows up in, in religious circles, and you may have read some books by him or heard about him. So Henry Moore says, and here's a scientist, so I have to, have to listen to what he has to say here. Henry Moore says that the effects of the previous three trumpets will have left the world's scientists and politicians trying to desperately to find naturalistic explanations for their causes. Unlike Wolverd and Ryrie, who follow the wording of text so far as to assess that complete darkening of the third of one-third of each day and one-third of each night, both Lindsay and Morris uh, seem to believe that the darkening describes is one-third reduction of light throughout the day and night, such as might be a result of air pollution. Lindsay proposes that the cause for the darkness as a result from the tremendous pollution in the air left from nuclear explosion, perhaps. Uh, and Morris, however, does not see the cause as pollution such, uh, but as some change in the physical process that causes the sun to emit light. So there you have it right there. That clears it up, right? So anyway, there seems to be something that where a third of the earth is going to be, is, is that a third of the sun's, third of the moon, and a third of the, uh, uh, the stars will be affected in this. And that's in verse 12. It says, The fourth angel blew its trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a kind of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So we see something that is affected here. Um, so as a, as a dispensationalist, I think you would see that this is an actual physical event that's going to happen in the future. Um, so some, you know, I read those other ones because those are people that are in the same camp as dispensational of the first two people I quoted. And they see this more as a spiritual thing. So um, I think, however, I think when I talk to John today in a cursory fashion, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about this, is he thinks that this is actually an event that's going to happen in the future. So we're looking at verse 12. So now we've gone through 
three of the trumpets, right? So we had the first trumpet. So the first trumpet was hail in fire. The second trumpet was burning of fire. And the third trumpet was the great star fell from the heavens, blazing like a torch, right? Okay, and then the fourth blue trumpet is a third of the sun was struck and a third of the, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars. So we've gotten over halfway through, right? So we're going to have seven trumpets here. We've still got three left. So now we move on to verse number 13. So verse 13 says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So here we have is that if you have a King James Version, it may say that an eagle flew or eagle crying heard of an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew. So uh, I think even though the, so there's a messenger that comes with a message here. I think the most accurate translation would say it's an eagle. So I'm not sure what this symbolism of the eagle is. There's some people who've gone to great length to try to explain what the symbolism of the eagle is. However, I don't think we get messed up whether it was an angel or an eagle or an angel that looked like an eagle. But the important part here is that what was the message? What was the message? If you remember when Jesus talked to the disciples, when He was talking to them, and it was very important, He would say, what would He say? To get their attention, what would He say? You remember what He said? He would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, so Jesus would repeat twice is that, hey, I'm fixing to tell you something really important. Truly, truly, I say unto you. And so we see here that this is a warning that comes to us. And it's not to the nth degree. It's not to the second degree. It's to the third degree here. And so on rare occasions, you'll see in the Bible where things are lifted to the third degree or to the tertiary degree, if you will. We see in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, as he talks about the holiness of God, and we see the holiness of God referred to as holy, holy, holy. So it's not we're removed one degree from God or two degrees from God or three degrees from God. We're removed from Him three times from His holiness, if you will. So I think the important thing to look at this last verse in chapter 8 is that he's giving a great degree or a, a great decree is that there's something that's very detrimental that's going to happen. There's something we need to pay, pay attention to. And so I'm pretty sure if I'm John and I'm having this vision and I see an eagle flying, that's going to get my attention. But if the eagle starts talking, I'm going to pay attention to what this eagle has to say. And then if he says, whoa, 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 I know that there's something coming that I need to hear. And so we see that in, the, in this verse 13, is that there's something that's great that's going to happen here. There's something that I need to pay attention to. And uh, what he talks about here is that the blast, the other trumpets of the three angels are about to blow. So that's why I think is that we can see in one way 
uh, when we come to the end of this chapter is that there's going to be three more trumpets and the three more trumpets are going to be even more catastrophic than the first four we see here. Um, and I don't think I wrote anything else on that. So we see that um, in this verse, in chapter, in verse 13, we see the eagle comes with announcements, and it's an announcement of great woe, if you will, of great woe. And Wolverd wrote on this, uh, Wolverd wrote on this, he says, uh, what he says, he says, he points out that the warning character of the first four trumpets, he writes, uh, that this verse indicates that the first four trumpets are not only judgments in themselves, but warnings uh, of the last three trumpets, which will be far more severe in character. Uh, similar months observes the transition from divine warning to demonic woes. Uh, it previews the ultimate excommunication of the unrepentant man to the punishment, therefore, uh, for the devil and his angels. Uh, and he has a reference of Matthew 25, 41 there. So this is a, if we're viewing this as a TV show and we come and see, we see these angels, we're going to end the end of this show is that we've got this being that's flying around us and it's got our attention. I mean, I, I sort of get nervous when I go to Home Depot or Walmart or somewhere and there's just a grackle inside the building flying around, you know, you've got my attention there, you know, because I'm wondering if that bird's coming to get me, whatever. So, so if there's an eagle in this room, uh, I'm going to pay attention. And so if this is a movie, we see this cliffhanger with this being flying around to us, speaking to us, whoa, 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 and tune in next week to see what happens. So we're going to speed ahead. I'll give you a preview of next week. So let's take a look at chapter 9. We're going to look at those first six verses in chapter 9. And we're going to hear about the fifth trumpet. So we're going to look at those next, sort of the next category, the next set of scriptures we look at are going to be uh, uh, that first, uh, those next six verses of the fifth trumpet. So we've got seven trumpets. Here's trumpet number five. And it says here, it says, Then the fifth trumpet sounded, or the fifth angel sounded, and I saw, I saw a star falling from the heaven to earth. To him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came out of the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were given authority, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. The torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. So I'm glad when John's not here, he gives me something easy to talk about. 
easy to explain here. So this is a, this is a, you know, this goes into really a more severe judgment, if you will, of what this fifth angel talks about. It goes into uh, talking about the tormentors of those who are not, how does it say here? That are, don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. Okay, So I would say those that are Christians, those that are redeemed, those that are chosen, those that are of the elect. So we're seeing a torment of here of those that, um, that are left here. So again, we have this uh, idea... Um, If we look at uh, some of the people from uh, the Reformation time as they saw the Antichrist and those powers as being pretty papal uh, from Rome as being part of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't see that here. I think probably that time in history it was pretty heavily thought that. Uh, and I think that probably was the way they viewed it. But I think as we sort of have more history to look at and see is that that's not exactly what they're talking about here. Uh, one of the futurists puts it, uh, Ironside, which we alluded to also, talks about uh, the fallen star is that it's the same as mentioned as the third trumpet, uh, whom he identified with as the Pope. However, while he believes the key represents a system of teaching, so I probably will reject his idea that it's the probe, but he does allude to the key. And when he talks about the key is basically all the false teaching. Uh, and the false teaching could be anything from, he refers to uh, New Thought, the New Age movement back in the 80s, remember that? New Theology, Eddieism, which was Christian science, talking about uh, Eddie Baker, Spiritualism, Theosophy, and other offshoots of these evil systems. So, and part of the things, uh, again, he thinks that this could be part of the way people think about theology and religion. Um, you know, we live in a day and a time, and I, when I talk to my kids about this, you live in a day and a time where you can justify any type of living you choose. You can choose any lifestyle and find a way to justify it. So you can see sort of in an in a era of the time is that as we move towards uh, in times, if you will, as we move towards those times, is that you see sort of a society that can pretty much approve of any type of lifestyle. You can find a way to justify that. And so I think part of what he's alluding here, Ironside is alluding to, is being able to justify uh, that particular mindset or that particular idea is that, um, you know, my way is just as good as any other way. My opinion is just as good as your opinion. And so what we're left with in our day and time is that is there any objective truth left? Is there any objective truth left? And if you look at the way the Gospels were presented, if you look at the book of Romans and how it's laid out, is that it's laid out as a book of faith, but it also lays that laid out as a book of reason. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think we live in a day and age and time is that we, we need to sort of get back to what objective truth is and being able to talk to people and express what truth is is present Christ is that you know is he true or not Christ is not just a choice but did Christ actually exist did he live here as a man on earth I mean is there evidence of Christ so part of that gets into apologetics and defending the faith and that type of thing but um, 
You know, I think as, as Christians and stuff, is that Jesus is not just an add-on to our life, but He's a very life. Our, he's, he's very life itself. Is that Christ is not, uh, you know, just something that we add on as a lucky charm. Is that, you know, Jesus is my magic genie and I'm going to rub Him and get what I want out of life. That's not what the Christian life is. And some of you people who have battle scars and wounds and, and walk funny and talk funny and have a limp... Physically and spiritually, you understand what I'm talking about. Is that you have a real relationship with Christ, and you have a testimony to go along with that. So you get on. Um, so you get on with uh, later on. I want to say it's Revelation 12. It says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So we see that it, the blood of Christ that was shed for our redemption also comes with a testimony of what He's done in our life, and we can always point back to that. So I think what he points here is one of the things he talks about here, at least Ironside uh, is one of the uh, dispensationalists or futurists we talked about. He sort of sees this uh, as the teaching and stuff. The interesting thing is that when you look at sort of the alternative lifestyles they had in 1 Corinthians, is that Paul didn't go off on them in 1 Corinthians about their lifestyle. He was trying to grow them up as Christians and train them up. He received them well. But if you look at the book of Galatians, Paul does not receive them very well. He basically calls them idiots. What have you idiots done as you've walked away from Christ? And so Jesus doesn't get upset as much with the practice that the people have. He gets upset with their theology. He gets upset with their theology in Galatians. So theology does matter. How we think about God, how we approach God, and I think it sort of alludes here is that the, he alludes here in the spiritualism of the futurist is that how we think about God and our theology does matter. Let's get on with uh, Ryrie and Wolverd and Morse, who we've also talked about. Uh, they preferred a literal interpretation here of the mountain that was burning and the falling star in the second and third trumpet agree with the fallen star in this chapter, seems to refer to a person rather than a literal star or meteor. And that's Wolverd's opinion. Lindsay, I'm assuming they're talking about Hal Lindsay here. Lindsay, uh, for the first time up to this point, does not see an object that falls from the heaven as a nuclear bomb. These writers believe this star to be none other than Satan himself. Uh, Rodri explains here, if you have a Rodri study Bible, this is probably in it, uh, fits with the previous literalism. It says sometimes the word star refers to a heavenly body, uh, as in verse 8:12, but uh, the word is often used to refer to some kind of intellectual creature, usually an angel. Uh, both meanings are perfectly consistent with plain, normal interpretation. In English, we would use this word in the same two ways. Literally, a star means an astrological entity. And equally literal, through a figurative speech, we use the word to mean a person like a star of a football game. So uh, there's some conjecture here of what the star means as it refers to him. I think there's a proper pronoun at the end of, uh, or in verse, thir in verse 13 of chapter 8, that, or maybe it's that first verse. See the last verse in 8 of the first one in 12, it talks about a proper pronoun as him. So I think that's what they're alluding to here. Uh, and then uh, they go on to say, um, they understood the locust as a demonic horde released against the unrepentant sinners in the tribulation time. Uh, 
the demons do not kill, but they torment their victims and are allowed to affect those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Uh, and then he talks about in chapter 7, the uh, 144, they'll be exempt. Uh, and then there's some other views. If you're a non-dispensationalist, you may view these as locusts, as demons that are loosed on the unbelieving world. So we see some affliction here, uh, regardless of whether you believe it's, uh, is that the torment goes on with these folks for uh, some time here. It says five months that are non-believers that they're tormented. Okay, so that's what we see here uh, in these first six verses. See what else we can find. I think that's what they're saying here is that we see this view is that they're being tormented by the devil or his minions or demons or to that certain extent. What did y'all talk about last week? That wasn't last week, no, but you mean the symbol on their forehead? Yeah, I missed the blue. I think I might have missed that. Did we talk about the seal on anybody's head? We hadn't gotten there yet. I think we talk about that later on. Well, they're supposed to target those that don't have the seal, like they should have Yeah, I'm not sure what they discussed. I would, my assumption would be is that the seal is the seal of Christ, is that you're, you're sealed as a believer, redeemed by Jesus Christ, and that's why you're not tormented by these demons that they're referred to here. So if I'm understanding, the demons are tormenting the non-believers. Mm-hmm. That's, how I, that's how I read these verses. Anybody have any other ideas on those? So list the 12 tribes and 144. Yeah. So list those tribes and I think, was it 144,000 in each one of the tribes? Okay. Or was it total? Yeah. Some people, refer, some people see that as a literal number. I do not consider that a literal number, but we can it's a different talk for a different day. Some people see that 144,000 as a literal number. which God placed upon them uh, show that God still had full control of these events. So even if they were demonic, God had control of them. So we still even see in these catastrophic times. Did y'all hear what did y'all hear what she said? Okay, so she's saying that even in these times where we see these locusts, they appear to be demonic locusts 
from their appearance is that even God controlled who they tormented. So we see even in these calamity, these times of calamity, is God still sovereign? He still controls things. He still allows and disallows things to happen. So, so I, I think as we look at that, is that we should we should not be fearful of these times, but we should have some comfort in knowing that God's sovereignty will reign. And it apparently in these verses here, it shows that the the believer will be uh, protected or will not be tormented by these demons. Any objections, emotional outbursts, protests, any pitchforks, torches or anything? Not at this time, not yet. But it looks like here in number six that I feel it's pretty bad for these people because it sounds like it's going to be so bad that they're going to want to die and they can't. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like there's a there doesn't sound like there's any escape when I read those verses. There's no escape for any any place you flee, any place you go, you're going to be confined, you're going to be they're going to know where you're at. They're going to know how to find you and that you're going to be tormented. You're going to be tortured or tormented or to something to that extent. Yes, ma'am. I just have a comment. I've never liked studying Revelation. I mean, I don't know if anybody else feels this way. It's scary to me. It's, it's disturbing. It is disturbing. I think at the least it is disturbing. Uh, that, and that's why... I, and, and that's one of the reasons when I started our lesson today is that there's more than one view of how to interpret revelation but none of the none of the interpretations make this easy there's no easy way to interpret this and there's probably no uh, there's no way to understand this without being disturbed and i think that's the point is that part of what we need to be is we need to be disturbed so we go to the one who can comfort us yeah Right. So Gwen, uh, Pat brings up a good good point too. Is that even though we may be saved, we may not be tormented. There's going to be people we know that would be, that would be in that category. So that should give us motivation to at least express to them is that who God is. Uh, you know why we need to be saved. Why we're being saved from the wrath of God. You know we talked about being saved. You know. That gets in a whole different category, but what we're being saved from is the wrath of God. And God is wrathful not because He's a mean God, but He's a just God and that He is holy and we are not. And so that's why the wrath of God was not poured out on us. It was poured out on Christ. And so that's where our salvation comes from is that we're being saved from the wrath of God. Um, and so we see, and, and that's when we get into this apocryphal type language in Revelation, is that, that we see the wrath of God being poured out, or seeing tormentors being allowed to torment. You know, part of that is, I think, is the wrath of God, and part of that, we, we're talking about the, uh, these trumpets as being judgment. Later on, we talk about, we've seen this effect in part of the world. Later on, I think we get to the bold judgment and to the latter plagues that we're going to see is that nobody's spared. Nobody is spared. So when you have your Christmas parties, you have family members you only see once or twice a year, just bring this up. I'm sure a good conversation will be had by all. An interesting conversation at all. But you know, a lot of this stuff we don't talk about, a lot of this stuff you don't hear in, in uh, mega churches because it's not pleasant to hear. But in order for us to understand the good news is we've got to know what the bad news is. 
And the bad news is that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And that if we have to have a relationship with the Holy God, you're not going to get there. Because even on your best day, your good days are as filthy rags to God. So that's why we have to have a mediator, and Christ is our mediator.